You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. We've been studying this book of joy, Paul's letter to the Philippians. He's in prison. He keeps talking about how happy he is. Last week, he warned us against a real uh, huge barrier to happiness, and that would be these false teachers who had come into this church or were on their way, and they were coming in. They were, they were Pharisee types, if you've ever read the Gospels, if you've ever read the life of Jesus. They were all about the rules. They're all about trying to control and heap all these laws onto people. And they kind of had this righteousness competition where they were just so holy, so righteous, so self-righteous. And they tried to hoist this on these Philippian believers as well. And Paul knew that would destroy their joy. Remember also Paul said, look, if these guys want to have like a righteousness competition, if they want to compare resumes, well, I'm better than them in every way. And he listed his righteousness resume. But then you remember he got to the end of it and he said, but you know what? He said in verse 7, I, whatever things were gained to me, all those things that are so awesome in the eyes of religion, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He's doing a lot of counting. He's, he's recalculating here. I count those as loss, actually. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered uh, the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish or dung or even stronger, more vulgar words as we saw last time. I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Yes, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And so here we see two types of righteousness. We see plan A. How do you get to heaven? Well, plan A... For most of us, we're going to try to be good. Isn't that the religious instinct? And so we have a righteousness of our own, and we follow the rules, and I am proving myself righteous. And Paul said, there's no way you can stack up to God's perfect standard. Why not go with plan B, the righteousness which comes from God? And notice it's sandwiched with faith. It's that which is through faith in Christ, and it's righteousness which is on the basis of faith. And so it's by placing our trust in a Savior, not by accomplishing, but by trusting. That's how we receive salvation. That's the good news that Jesus came to bring. That's the good news of the Bible. If you want a, a pretty good outline of, the, of chapter 3 of Philippians, remember this verse we spent a whole week unpacking in Philippians 1.6? Paul says, God who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We spent a whole week on that. That kind of gives us an outline for Philippians 3. The first nine verses of the chapter, it's all talking about the work that God began, and specifically in Paul. It's all talking about in the past tense. It's accounting language. Paul is acting as an accountant. He's got his pocket protector and his glasses and his calculator out, and he's counting. He's recalculating. The things he thought were so awesome, he now counts them as but dung, and he, now he says, I trade it all for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I've traded religion for relationship. This week... The tense, the verb tense changes to the present tense. And here it talks about the work that God is perfecting in an ongoing way in Paul's life. And by implication, there's application for us. And here he, he takes off his, you know, puts down his calculator and he gets out his running shoes. It's athletic imagery. He's running, like running a race. Or he's like a hunter hunting his prey. 
And so we see the ongoing work of God perfecting this initial good work where we become more and more like Christ, where we know Him better and better. And then next week, next time we're together studying Philippians, we're going to see the final stage, and it's all in the future tense when God's work is completed at the return of Christ, the day of Christ Jesus. And so that's what we've got to look forward to next time, a teaching on heaven. This week, though, we're going to talk about this middle section of the chapter, the work God is perfecting. And hopefully we can learn some things about spiritual growth. Chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says, that I may know him. He, he had already mentioned this back in verse 7. He mentioned the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And now he says, that I may know him. That's what I want more than anything. I want to know Christ. What does that involve? A lot of things. Knowing about Christ. You know, we've got to know things about him if we're going to know him in a personal way. But it's more than just knowing about him. It's also knowing him as a friend and hopefully increasingly in our lives, knowing him as a best friend, that he is our closest friend. I mean, after all, he can, he can dwell inside of us. He he's, loves us perfectly. He's got a lot of traits that would qualify him for best friend. Um, he's known and loved you since before the beginning of time. So we've got to know about Christ, and we need to know him. There's both head knowledge and personal knowledge in this relationship with him. And Paul says, I want them both. There's a becoming like him where we're transformed, where we're more and more like him. So we know him better just as we learn to think the way that he thinks, act the way that he acts. We start to have shared goals where we're both striving for the same things. And there's a certain closeness that can come when you've got, you know, kind of a shared mission with someone. We seek to please him. We want to make him happy. We want to do things that just please Christ because we, we love him and we want to make him happy. And we look forward, we long for that day when we will unhindered, we will see, his, we'll see him face to face in heaven. And we won't have all the barriers that we've got in our way now, all the, the layers of distance as close as we are. So how do we know Christ? How do we get this kind of close relationship? Don't you want that kind of a relationship? With Jesus, isn't it amazing you can have this kind of a relationship with the creator of the universe? That's right, we can. This is not religion, guys. This is relationship. This is love with the God who is love. How do we know Christ? He's going to give us a few, a few more lines on this. He says, I want to know him. I want to know the power. Yeah, power of resurrection. Jesus did raise from the dead. And something about the power that did that, that's a power that we can know in a personal way. He says, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Doesn't that sound awesome? Don't you want to suffer like Christ did? Remember how he suffered on the cross? Being conformed to his death. Don't you want that? Don't you want to know that experience? Isn't this exciting to you? Why? In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What's he talking about here? We've got resurrections, sufferings, death, resurrection. Hmm. Let's split this out a little bit. Resurrection, suffering, his resurrection, his sufferings, his death. And then that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So there's something I get in this. So what's he talking about? Some people are like, well, Paul really hopes he'll go to heaven. You know, he's talking about one day he'll die and then he'll raise in the final resurrection. Mm, I don't think so. 
This is not about going to, to heaven. There's, these are present tense verbs that he's talking about. Also, the very next verse, Paul says, I mean, not that I've already obtained it. Like, he's got to clarify that. I mean, why would he need to clarify that? Does somebody think Paul really has already died and gone to heaven? No. So he's not talking about this future thing. He'll get there later in, in the chapter. No, it's not that. What he's talking about is this very well-taught doctrine in Scripture about the present experience of resurrection power. The present experience of resurrection power. What does he mean here? He says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. So if we want to get the power in our lives of the resurrection, this is the power for the victorious life, This is not the sinless life, but this is for victory over sin. This is power, this is is effectiveness in our service of God. If we want that power, he says we also need to know the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I can attain to that resurrection from the dead. And so somehow we partake in that. Now on the one hand, Scripture says, I have been crucified with Christ the moment that I became a Christian. The old, the old is gone, the new has come. I'm a new creation, it says. But on the other hand, the experience of this is an ongoing process that takes time. It do, that does not happen instantaneously. This is the life out of death principle. It requires sharing. In the, when that word fellowship is sharing. Sharing in his sufferings. Being conformed to his death. Where I start to look more like I've been on the cross. I'm crucified with Christ. This is the life out of death principle that we see taught by Jesus and the other New Testament authors. Let me give you just, I normally don't like to jump to other passages, but I think this is so important. I'm going I'm to just read a few verses out of 2 Corinthians 4 and John 12. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, you know, we've got this treasure, the Holy Spirit, the life of Christ. Christ, Christ dwells in us if we're Christians, but it's in jars of clay. So we've got a, a, just an old clay pot here. And he says, the reason it's in a jar of clay is to show the all-surpassing powers from God and not from us. Yeah, back then they, it was hard to hide your valuables. So sometimes they, they had a bunch of old pots laying around their house and they would, one of them would be like, you know, the third pot on the right. They would stick their valuables in there. And so, you, you know, a thief coming in would not know that there was something valuable in that pot. And he says, we're kind of like that. We're very unimpressive on the outside, but on the inside is, our, is a life savings. It's a, a valuable diamond ring or whatever. And so he says, the problem is the pot hides the valuable thing on the inside. And that's our problem too. We got this valuable Holy Spirit inside of us as Christians, but the, the outside hides it. So what does God do? Well, Paul says, well, we're hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not taken out, not destroyed. And so this pot is constantly being banged around. It's got drills going. It's got hammers going on. It's getting run over with the car. There's all kinds of things happening to this pot. And slowly as it chips away, the light on the inside starts to shine out. And so he says three times, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus So the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. Isn't that what he just said in Philippians? Being conformed to his death in order I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. 
He says it again. We who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that His life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. Again, the life out of death. The pot chips away, but the light on the inside shines out. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Oh, that's interesting. So he kind of switches it a little bit. And so he's talking not just about the light is shining out from us, the life is shining out from us, but we're able to have a life-giving effect in the lives of other people. Isn't that what a lot of us want? We want to have a life-giving effect in the life, lives of others. And for some reason, we just seem like it's not getting through. It's not working. Well, Paul says, maybe your, maybe your pot's getting in the way. Maybe that clay jar is blocking the light, the life, getting out and shining in the other person's heart. Here's a short teaching from Jesus on this in John 12, the right on the, the, the week leading into his crucifixion. He gives the analogy of a grain of wheat, a little seed. You see the seeds in the hand there falling into the soil? Nice, shiny, golden kernels. Jesus says, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Ah, yes, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where? To the cross, right where he's about to go. We talked a few weeks ago. How many times did Jesus talk about, if you want to save your life, you need to lose it? The last will be first. The servant will be the greatest overall. It's this down principle that, that Paul took Jesus through in chapter 2, and now he's talking about his own journey down. Down, 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 considering it all rubbish that he may gain Christ and may attain to this resurrection power. And so you see these kernels, and, and you know, I, I've experienced some suffering in my life, but I, I like to read the old saints who've, you know, had 60, 70 years of suffering under their belt, and they write about it at the end of their lives. And um, I'd like to read just a few excerpts from uh, some that have been especially helpful to me. They can say it a lot better than I have. They've experienced it a lot more than I have. Miles Stanford, green letters. Here's what he says, talking about this shiny, beautiful kernel of wheat. He says, you know, we often come across Christians who are bright and clever and strong and righteous. In fact, a little too bright, a little too clever. There seems so much of self in their strength and their righteousness is severe and critical. They have everything to make them saints except crucifixion, which would mold them into a supernatural tenderness and a limitless love for others. Oh, that sounds nice. It sounds very nice. But God has prepared a wine press for them through which they will someday pass, which will turn the metallic hardness of their nature into gentle love. Wow. One of God's most effective means is the process of failure. So many believers are simply frantic over the fact of failure in their lives. And they'll go to all lengths trying to hide it, ignore it, or rationalize about it. And all the time, they are resisting the main instrument in the Father's hand for conforming us to the likeness of His Son. It's funny, he gives another analogy in this book of like, just how 
beautiful the kernel must feel when it's high up on the stalk. And then suddenly, like one day, it falls to the earth, and it's in the soil, and it's dying, and it's breaking down. It's like, what is happening? It has no idea. That is the process through which it will then be able to yield 30, 60, 100 times what it originally was. And each of those seeds, if they go through this death process, they can germinate new life. And they, can, they too can yield exponential growth. Watchman Nee, Release of the Spirit. Here's the first line in his book. You ready for this? Anyone who serves God will sooner discover sooner or later that the great hindrance to his work is not others but himself. Problem is me. I'm getting in the way of myself. He said, you know, we should be aware that brokenness is God's way in our lives. That's another term for it, brokenness. How sad that some still imagine if they could only absorb more teaching, accumulate more preaching material, assimilate more Bible exposition, they would be profitable to God. This is absolutely wrong. <laughs> oh. God's hands upon you to break you. Hmm. Not according to your will, but His. Not according to your thoughts, but His. Not according to your decision, but His. Our difficulty is that as God withstands us, we blame others. I mean, none of you, of course. Some Christians do that. Some Christians just fight failure. And they feel so horrible, and like this means something's horribly wrong, and maybe it just means God, this is God's process of turning you into the kind of person he can use. Chuck Smith, writing at the end of his life, he says, the road to successful service for God is lined with failure. It's like the pavement, you know, on the road. <laughs> In the preparation, discouragements and defeats are necessary. Necessary. Had I been successful early on, I would have taken credit for all that God did. And by the way, Chuck Smith was at age, he was in his early 40s. He had bounced around to a bunch of different churches, had failed out of serving God at least once, and took a job with a 25-person little church of old people called Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, California. He happened to take it right at the beginning of the hippie uh, Jesus movement. That church blew up to several thousand They've planted hundreds, thousands of churches across the country and across the world. Many of these churches have eight, ten thousand or more people in them. This guy can talk. This guy's been used by God. And he says, thank God for those failures for the first 20 plus years of my serving God. I wouldn't have been able to handle the recognition that God gave me, but I would have taken credit for the success. God wants to receive the glory for the work he does. So he first prepares the person to be the instrument he desires to use. That preparation includes a lot of failure to learn the difference between God's work and your own. God leads you through failure so that when he works, you'll know you're for certain you are not responsible for the success. And God alone receives the credit. God wants to work, but the glory needs to go to God. Hmm. Yeah, so when Paul writes... I want to know him and res his resurrection and his sufferings and his death so that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is what he's talking about. This is part of where closeness with Christ comes in as well. This is where we have no other option 
but to draw near to Him. Where we're desperate, where we're hungry, where we're thirsty, we're not full and satisfied. And this closeness with Him, this will be our sustenance as we serve God. This is what gets us through these hard times. This is where we find joy. If you're fighting suffering, if you're kicking against it, you're refusing to let the doctor work, you're going to lose your happiness. You're going to grow sour and bitter. This happens to Christians, okay? This is not a theoretical thing. I've seen it. But if we can see suffering being conformed to his death as the pathway to knowing him better and to releasing his power to work through us, then then we will find that joy. And we can, like James says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials because we know the effects that it will have in our lives. It's a deep, these are deep truths here. Take years to learn these things. But this is what Paul is saying. And he says, I mean, it's not like I've already obtained it or I've already become perfect. Okay, so... You know, some Christians talk like you just, you're supposed to reach a point where, poof, you don't sin anymore. Or they act like they've already reached that point. I mean, the Apostle Paul, he's almost 30 years into following God, and he's like, oh, I'm nowhere near perfect. <laughs> don't get me wrong. I haven't reached this in its fullest state. I, he's gradually getting more and more of it. You can bet that. It's like, oh, I haven't already become perfect. And that's okay. There's a process here. A process that, like he said in 1.6, he began a good work, work in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Knowledge of a person, release of his power, brokenness, um, more centered on truth, that can all increase more and more until Christ comes back. And honestly, our knowledge of Christ will increase even more once he comes back. We'll be taken up a level though then. He says, I haven't already become perfect, but I, I'll tell you what I do. I press on. I press on. I keep on pressing on. What does he mean here? Well, this word press on, this belongs to the world of the hunter. It means to pursue, to chase, to hunt down. He's like, I'm hunting. You know, in fact, um, back in 3.6, when Paul says, as to zeal, I'm a persecutor of the church, it's the same word. I was a hunter of the church. And so he went from hunting Christians to hunting the goal, hunting this thing that God wants for him. Spiritual growth, knowledge of Christ, pressing on on the race that God has marked out for him. I press on for what? What does he press on? What is he seeking? What is he hunting? What is he chasing? I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Lay hold of the thing I was laid hold of for. So there's a couple people laying hold, a couple people grabbing here, grasping. To lay hold. It can mean to lay hold of with the understanding like I grasp it, like mentally. But it can also mean like to arrest, like you're under arrest, buddy. To seize something or someone. You know, Paul says, I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. You know what he's talking about there, right? You remember his Damascus Road experience? You remember that? In Acts chapter 9, where he's, he's riding along, going to, to Damascus with a great idea to hunt some Christians, kill them. 
And instead, Jesus himself shows up and he's like, uh, you're under arrest. He, he seized me. He got me. I mean, it, Paul was totally a willing participant in this, okay? But it was not his idea to start following Christ. Christ revealed himself in such a powerful way and such perfect timing. And he says, Christ seized me. He arrested me. He got me. And now as a result, I want to lay hold of the... You know, he, laid, he, he got me for a reason. And Christ has laid hold of you for a reason as well. It wasn't for nothing. And he says, the reason that he laid hold of me, I'm spending my life hunting down that thing that he grabbed me for. What is it? What did Christ lay hold of Paul for? Well, what we were just talking about. So Paul would know Jesus. So Paul would serve Jesus. So Paul would be like Jesus. So Paul would experience Christ's resurrection power. And Paul says, I want that more than anything, and this is the goal of my life now. A single-minded focus. Notice, too, there's both active and passive elements here. On the one hand, he was laid hold of. On the other hand, he's the one doing the laying hold, doing the seizing. He's the one after it. And so this is a process begun by Christ, it's guided by Christ, but there's still a role that we need to play. So what is Paul saying? He's laid hold of it already? He says, no, 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 no. I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. So he clarifies that, just like he did in the last verse. But one thing, one thing. He's got his life boiled down to one thing. What about you? Do you? And is it the right thing? Remember what he said earlier, to live is Christ and to die is gain? It's one thing. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on that same word. I'm hunting. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's a prize. There's a goal, and it's upward. It's heavenward, and I'm pressing on for that. So there's a few things here. He describes how he presses on. There's the things that lie behind, and what's he say? He says, you got to forget about those. And there's the things that lie ahead. And he says, I reach forward to those. Let's talk about these. What lies behind? Hmm. I like the image of the rearview mirror. I'm sad to say that some of us are spending our lives staring not out the front windshield, but with our eyes fixed firmly on the rearview mirror. And it's one thing if we're looking back at the cross, like that's fine, all right? <laughs> that's great. But that's not what is in our rearview mirror. We've got a lot of things that lie behind, and we are wasting our lives staring at them and beating ourselves up for them or patting ourselves on the back for them. And that's the opposite of what, what Paul was doing, remember? He's forgetting. He's, Whatever things are gained to me, those are a big pile of dung. I just sort of swerved around with my car. <laughs> What is in the rearview mirror for you? 
failures and regrets? A lot of us are spending a lot of time thinking about our failures, thinking about our regrets. Some of us, it's things we did before we came to Christ. I've talked to uh, people that said, you know, every morning for the past 25 years, I wake up and think about my abortion. And that's how, that's how that person started their day. Can you see where that could get in the way of your spiritual growth? Of, of sin that's been forgiven? People who committed crimes. The Apostle Paul had killed people. Remember that? That's probably not something you forget easily. Maybe some of us have committed some pretty violent crimes. And they haunt us. Christ wants to forgive those. Or maybe he already has forgiven those. And you need to claim that forgiveness and stop staring in the rearview mirror. Past sexual experiences. Some of us constantly look back at those. Filled with shame. We look back at... I remember I could, I could think back to the meanest things I did to people. Things that had happened a decade or two in the past. And if I let myself, I could feel so horrible about them. Paul says, forget what lies. It's not that we don't know that it happened. Like, you know, when God, when God forgets our sins, it's not like he's like, oh, wait, what did you do? No, it's, he doesn't. He doesn't roll it out. He doesn't center on it. He, 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 he puts it behind. He, he's not going to hold it against you. And you need to not hold it against you either. We can learn from the past. That's good. But beating ourselves up about it. There might be things from early on our walks with God. There might be times we walked away from God. Some people feel so horrible about what they did and how they walked away from God and came back. You're back. Praise God. Or you can come back. Praise God. We can think about our recent past. Like, I, I can spend so much time thinking about some stupid thing I said earlier, this, earlier today or a few days ago, recounting the conversation. Like, geez, what an idiot I am. It's so painful. It's like, how can I undo what I did? Sometimes it means you just need to apologize, okay? If, if, you're, if you're stuck, maybe there's something you need to do about it. But sometimes you just need to claim grace. Man, some of us, we, uh, we, we dwell on our patterns. We think about how we get started, and then we fall, and we take two steps forward and three steps back, and this has been our pattern maybe for years now. And we beat ourselves up about it. Our eyes are fixed squarely on the rearview mirror. Paul says, forgetting what lies behind. I press on. I reach forward. We've got other regrets. Some people are like, if only I had acted differently, maybe this person would still be following God today. If only I had seen the signs. Some of us are like, if I, if I had done things differently, this person would still be alive today. It's very common in the face of death to think, if only I had done this, if only I had seen that. It's extremely common. If only I had done more. Couldn't you always say, if only I had done more? We kick ourselves for relationships we've ruined, romantic relationships or otherwise. Paul says, forgetting what lies behind. Reaching forward to what lies ahead.
people might be like, but Paul, don't you regret persecuting the church? And he'd be like, I think he'd be like, I mean, what good would that do? It was wrong. I'm grateful that Christ saved me, but I'm not going to sit around replaying the tapes of things I did to people. No. And what I've seen, too, is people that are stuck in regret, they can't use their testimony to help other people because they're still mired down in shame. What this person needs, they need to see what it's like to move on, to have joy, to be free. That's what they need. That's what you need to learn. You need to receive the freedom for which Christ has set you free and not be subject to a chain again. disappointment and tragedy. Some people go through suffering and they never recover. They spend the rest of their life bitter about what was done to them, about the raw deal they got, about how they had this dream for their life and it's not going to happen now, ignoring the sovereignty of God, ignoring His loving hand and allowing sufferings into our lives. I've seen, uh, you'll see this, as you get a little bit older, you'll see parents who have a kid walk away from God, and it's like they're shattered, inconsolable, can never recover from that, can never find happiness again. You see people who have been through um, a spouse cheating on them, they've been through abuse, they've been wronged by someone in some way, and they're stuck. And they're growing more sour and more bitter and more unhappy. We need to forget what lies behind. We need to reach forward to what lies ahead. Sometimes it's a good thing we're thinking about. We got the good old days syndrome. We got a case of that. Where we idealize the past. We think back to high school and how good things were. The parties we used to go to. The... The romantic escapades we had. Some people think back to college. Some people think back to their, uh, their time on the sports team, that city championship. I was all state. I made the winning whatever. Glory days of chess club, you know, that one checkmate that you got. <laughs> we forget the hangovers. We forget the walks of shame. We forget how empty we are. We forget the suicidal thoughts we were having without Christ. We were not following Christ. You ever, you ever meet somebody that's like living back in the 90s or the 80s or something or the early 2000s? You ever have somebody t- like, you ever like, a, like an older relative tell you about their GPA in college or their ACT scores? It's like, dude, you're 60. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> Move on. <laughs> Some people idealize old, older um, previous times in ministry. There's some people, maybe even people in our fellowship that are thinking back to 20 years ago as those were the days. No, those days were hard too. It's, it's good to keep a journal because you look back and you're like, whoa, there were hard times then too. But we're comparing our actual reality to an idealized past and that can never match up. We've created a fictional view of the past and we're using that to make ourselves unhappy in the present. No. God wants us living right now. Jesus said, you know, even tomorrow's got enough trouble. Let's worry about today. He wants us focused on the cross, on eternity future, and right now. And we want to dwell on the past and worry about 
next week. Both of which are very unstable places to place our feet. No, the cross and heaven, that's, those are good footing to, to deal with the now. That's what Paul is saying. That's the key to happiness. Boy, the good old days syndrome. This is why sometimes you see people, they get out of a destructive relationship and then they go right back into it because they've idealized it and they can't stay away from it. Or they get back into one just like it. Sometimes the rearview mirror, we're focused on loved ones who are no longer in the race. I was texting with a friend of mine who his wife suddenly, tragically died a year ago, this past weekend. And I told him I was praying for him, and he was like, what can I pray for for you? And I was like, well, I'm teaching tonight on Philippians 3, forgetting what lies behind. He goes, you know, that's funny. That's, that's the verse that I've been clinging to. That's been the theme of this time in my life right now, this one-year anniversary. And I thought, what a good verse. He knows she's in heaven. He knows he's going to see her real soon. We all are. And so I, we can't dwell on the past and sit there. We can miss people. But if we can't move on, if we long for the person who's passed away, the person who's walked away from God, uh, the person who's moved away to serve God other places and other ways, Paul had some of these, I'm sure of that. He probably had a family before he met Christ. His wife, he probably had a wife who may have left him when he converted. He had to move on. We stare into the rearview mirror at old versions of our identity. You know, your family may have given you a way of defining yourself. You're the funny one. You're the stable one. You're the one that needs to hold it together for the rest of us. You're the smart one, or you're the angry one. You're the screw-up. You're just a cold, mean person when you're not. So you end up trying to correct a tendency you don't even have, spending your whole life on that. You can't get an accurate view of yourself. Or maybe you've got your own views of yourself. I remember I had this view of myself that I could do really well in practice, but then I couldn't, I couldn't deliver in the game when the pressure was on. And I just lived with that view of myself for so long, I would lock up when any pressure came on me. I carried that over into my spiritual life. You're doomed to fail at romance. Maybe that's the view of yourself, or you've, just, you've blown it, you've waited too long, and now it's hopeless. How others wronged you, yeah, Bitterness is a poisonous root, Scripture calls it. We get stuck on things that were done to us. These can be big things. These can be smaller things. Like I was recently, I was, I was telling my wife, I was like, I just can't put this conversation I had with this person out of my mind. And she was like, well, have you forgiven them? And I was like, no, that's a good point. I hadn't even thought of that. I just was replaying it, getting angry. No, we need to learn to forgive. Not, it's not being a doormat. It's not, I can't remember. It's not forcing a feeling. But it's making sure I've received the forgiveness from Christ, admitting what really happened, and instead of punishing them and replaying it and taking it out on them, 
I absorb that into myself by being kind to them, by praying for them, by rooting for them, by refusing to bring it up no matter what, by refusing to replay the videos in my mind. Yeah, we got all these things in the rearview mirror, and Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. This is the positive. This is running imagery. This is like a runner leaning forward. I wanted to show a an animated gif from the SEC track and field championships two years ago. 400 meter hurdle. The guy's name is Infinite Tucker. I'm not kidding. From Texas A&M. The race is pretty close and so he leans in at the end to win. Check it out. He's the top guy. (laughs) Boosh. Want to see it again? Ready? Look at that. He's just, look at, the, look at the shot one photographer got. <laughs> and he won the race. Talk about reaching forward to what lies ahead. That's the image Paul's got here. <laughs> or here's another one. This is the London Marathon, two, uh, same month, two years ago, April 2019. 26-year-old Haley uh, Carruthers collapsed inches in front of the line. She's in first place. No, no one's even in sight behind her. And she had to crawl the final inches with a body that barely worked, reaching forward to what lies ahead. Pretty cool. That's what it feels like sometimes following God, reaching forward to what lies ahead when you just don't feel like you can go on any further. She was fine. She went to work the following Monday. <laughs> Which makes you question running marathons. (laughs) But yeah, what does this involve? A few quick things here. Obviously, eternity with Christ is what lies ahead. And we're going to spend all of next time we're in Philippians talking about that. But our position truths. This is what God says about us. These are true things about us that will never change, that we're adopted as his son or daughter, that we're eternally forgiven, eternally secure. He loves us. He accepts us. He's cleansed us. These are the truths that will carry right on into eternity. And this is where we're called to set our focus, on the here and now identity truths and on the future eternity. And that eternal focus is what will carry us through and will give us joy in the hard times. It requires a disciplined focus. You know, some Christian authors, they talk about the athlete like, I just need to do the right thing. Like this willpower righteousness. And that's not what it is. It's a focus. It's a mindset. We're setting our minds on this. We're fixing our minds on this. That's what he's talking about here. And so there is a discipline, and it does take time. And it's not like I do this for a week and suddenly I'm spiritually mature, but if you can do this a couple of years, you, you know, you'll start to see results even within months. But if you can keep your focus on the right place, on your identity and on heaven, and rip it off of the rearview mirror, spending time in God's Word is so good for this. This gets our focus right where it should be. And then he says, let us therefore, as many as are mature, have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude. Well, God will reveal that also to you. You don't have to have it all figured out before you start running. Just go. Get your focus in the right place. And God, God will make course corrections along the way. 
However, let's keep living by that same standard to which we've attained. He's like, at least don't run backward, okay? Let's not regress, which is possible. Let's keep our focus there. When we get off track, let's get back on track. So I'll just close with two questions. First of all, will you join the race? Anybody can sign up. You don't need like a bib or, you know, to pay any money. Christ paid it all. He died for you so that you could be his, so that you could trade your trash for treasure, and so you could begin this long, eternal process of knowing him. And secondly, how are you going to spend your life? Looking out the front windshield at the cool adventure ahead or back in the rearview mirror? Why not get your focus out on eternity, where it belongs, where you're headed? Yes, Lord, what a freeing message this is. Complete forgiveness, freedom from the chains of our past, freedom to move ahead in the reality of grace, knowing where we're headed, knowing you're with us, knowing we're not alone, but we've got other believers you've placed in our lives, God. Um, thank you for the happiness that comes from that. God, I pray we experience the fullness of that. I pray you'd help. Those of us here tonight who are hanging on to something, I pray that you help them to either do what they need to do to resolve it or let it go if there's nothing that can be done. And just lay it at the cross, hand it over to you, draw on your power, God. I pray for those of us too who feel like we've done something so bad that you could never accept us, God. I pray they would see how false that is. I pray that, like that verse that Alex shared, Though our, our sins are as red as crimson, you want to make us as white as snow, God. And that's as white as it gets. I, I'm thankful that because of what Christ did, you can cleanse us fully. I pray, those, I pray that if there's someone feeling that barrier, that they would see the truth and they would come to you and receive your forgiveness. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.